There's a faithful servant, and I'm going to embarrass you a bit, but you're here early, and you're, you help with the sound team. You're always in the back, so no one ever sees you serving, but uh, super faithful guy. Only, you know what? I, I, feel, I had a special place in my heart for sound guys, number one, because I wouldn't be able to hear without them, but uh, always, any time something goes wrong, the sound guy gets blamed. So like 95% of the time... You know, he's, he's doing a great job. They're doing a great job back there and uh, no, no accolades. So I was reminded of that as he came through for me uh, with a dead battery. All right, so if you would, just go ahead and open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. And uh, just as we, as we begin, let's, let's uh, go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we do... I come to you this morning and just echoing the song and and the things that we've been meditating on even this morning uh, of just the privilege it is to come before you as our holy God and um, what would have consumed us in your righteousness and your 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 goodness um, has now uh, just been transformed to be our our greatest good. Um, so we love you. We're thankful that. Um, you've invited us into your holy presence, even this morning, in a unique way as we gather as your church. And we want to we want to look at that from the book of Ephesians. And so we pray that you would grant clarity uh, in the ministry of your word, and that uh, we would be built up as you intend. Um, and we ask it all in Christ's name, Amen. Okay, so Ephesians chapter three, we're continuing our study. In the book of Ephesians, and as, as we get going, um, who in here likes mystery stories? Stories that are suspenseful? Now, I, this is just a curiosity. This has nothing to do with the lesson. How many of you also like Hallmark? That, that like mystery, thrillers, those kinds of things? That, raise your hands high. I had a theory in my head. Okay, a few of you. All right, that's helpful. That's helpful. I was, I was just curious. I was going to make a statement, but now I'm not. So, <laughs> few things to me are better than a, than a good mystery story or mystery novel or, or series of shows or movie. I like the whodunit stuff. Um, I like Sherlock, and uh, in particular, one of my favorites is, is favorite author, classic authors is Charles Dickens. Just can't predict them. Uh, highly suspenseful. They're always trying to anticipate where the where the story's going, and um, can never quite predict it. Um, well, that's that's kind of the when we hear the word mystery, that's typically what we think of, or the either the mystery novels or um, some some type of show. But when the Bible talks about a mystery, it has a slightly different nuance. A mystery is something that has always been part of God's plan. Yet it was formerly unrevealed in its fullness. So, in some ways, similar to our understanding of mystery. But a mystery, according to Scripture, is something that's always been part of God's plan. Yet it it was formerly unrevealed in its fullness. A mystery, then, is revealed when God makes known the new development. Does that make sense? So we could say a mystery, in the biblical sense, is something that was concealed at one point in time and then revealed. 
In this contrast, uh, the mystery that's revealed is, is exactly what Paul is going to teach us about today in our text in Ephesians. But this isn't the first contrast we've seen, is it? In our, our, set of, our set of stories in Ephesians, what are some other contrasts that we've seen already? Just yell them out. Previously dead, now we're alive. Yep, so Paul's, that was the first contrast in chapter 2. What else? There's another contrast. We saw it last week. Strangers to friends. Yep, foreigners to family. However, Paul says it far to near. We were far Gentiles, and we've been brought near into the covenant family. So you really see what Paul's doing. He's developing these contrasts through chapter 2 and... Um, and then into chapter 3, he says we've been brought from death to life. We were dead sinners, but God has graciously made us alive, resurrecting a new humanity for himself, and has enthroned us with Christ. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And like we said, he's brought us from, from being foreigners and, and Gentiles into the family of Abraham by faith. Not only were we dead, but we were also Gentiles, not originally part of God's covenant family like Israel. But God has brought us into his covenant people through Jesus, and he's made us one with the believing Jews. And we're nothing less, and here's the point, nothing less than his new temple, his new house, where God takes up his holy residence. These are are stunning descriptions. Rich was talking about just having somewhere to hang your hat in terms of truth this morning. These are stunning descriptions of the church and what, what we are in Christ, what God has done for us. Well, at the opening of, of chapter 3, it seems like Paul is transitioning to something different, right? So, let's pick up in chapter 3. He says, for this reason, so he's just described the, how, we're, how we're a, a holy temple, a spiritual house for God. So, he says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, dot, 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 Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, and then he goes on. So verse two, he kind of he kind of he kind of breaks off. So you think, okay, verse one, Paul's doing something a little different. Rising gets going in in verse one, he, he kind of breaks off. There's no verb. There's nothing that that completes the sentence. So that it kind of piques my curiosity. What was what was Paul going to say right there? Like where where was he going? Well, he was actually about to pray for the temple that he just described back in chapter 2. And you say, well, how do, we, how do we know that? Can you read Paul's mind? Well, no, because he comes back to the same idea in verse 14. So, look in verse 14. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Then he goes on to continue to pray. So verse 14, Paul picks up what he starts in verse 1. You see the parallels? Let me put them up on screen here. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and then the ESV puts a dash, most translations do, I think, showing that Paul's breaking off the sentence. Then he picks it back up in verse 14. The same phrase, for this reason... It shows he's picking that back up, his train of thought, where, he's, where he was originally going there. So this isn't 
just a little a little grammar lesson. Uh, what I'm trying to show you here is that verses two through thirteen is a is a digression. That's what we'll call a, a digression of Paul's thought. So he's he's going to break off here. So he he starts to pray, and then he stops himself, and he he squeezes one more thing in here in these in these few verses. And he, he's actually going to squeeze in a third and final contrast. So one more. Bringing one in right before he gets to right right before he prays, and we're calling this contrast, um, you know, from concealed to revealed. So it's about the mystery of Christ. He's going to unpack that. We'll show, I'll show you how it all fits together. But we're we're calling it from concealed to revealed, or or, or the the mystery that is has been revealed. And so. We're going to look at, as this unfolds, really four features of this mystery that, that Paul wants to show us. And a text like this is, is really important because Paul's, Paul's about to launch you know, into this prayer, which is, by the way, the same pattern that he has in chapter 1. Remember in chapter 1, Paul describes the blessings that we have in Christ. And he, he just starts to unpack those, unpack those, and then it's almost like he pulls up and... At the, at the end of chapter 1, it essentially says, hey, I want to pray for you now. I want to pray that you would understand the things I just communicated to you. So that's the pattern in chapter 1. And then chapters 2 and 3, the same pattern happens again. We see these contrasts. And then Paul, eventually in verse 14, will, will pray. And that's how he'll end, really, the first half of this letter, which is uh, so foundational for, this, for the back half. But the last, the last contrast he wants to develop is this contrast that uh, we're calling from concealed, or a mystery that was concealed and now it's, it's been revealed in Christ. And he's going to unpack this mystery just along these four features, what we're calling four features of the, the mystery that's been revealed. And the first feature of this mystery is, I'm calling it, it it's, it's revelatory reception. Now, I know that is a mouthful, so I'll give you a chance to write it down, and then we'll talk about it. The mystery, the first feature of this mystery is it's, it's, it's been received by revelation. Paul has received it by revelation. Or we're calling it, it's revelatory reception. Look in uh, verses 1 to 5 here. For this reason... I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, about to drop to his knees and pray, but now he breaks off, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men, in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So Paul starts, verse 1, by reminding them that he's a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. Now that's a really interesting phrase. He's a prisoner, okay, so he's incarcerated, that's easy. But he's a prisoner of Jesus. Okay, so that could mean a couple different things. It could mean that he's a prisoner on behalf of Jesus, because he's preaching about Jesus, so he's been arrested, and I think that's probably the main intent. Or it could literally just mean he's Christ's prisoner. 
meaning he's, he's got to do Christ's will. And I think there's probably that double meaning there going on in this text. He's a prisoner for Christ Jesus, but it's specifically on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, this is, uh, I'm going to explain this at the end because he's going to come back to this idea, but just so that we can understand where he's going. He's essentially saying that <clears throat> he is, he's been incarcerated, he's been arrested because of his proclamation of the gospel. And he's proclaiming the gospel specifically to the Gentiles. So, in an in a extended way, he's literally a prisoner because of them. He's a prisoner on their behalf for them. Um, because, he's been, because he's brought the good news to them. Now, I think it's right here, the reason he breaks off and he doesn't just keep going with the prayer is because he knows his readers are going to be tempted to feel bad about that. They're going to be tempted to think, oh man, you're in prison for me. They're going to be discouraged by that. So if you look back, look in uh, verse 13. This is his conclusion to the little digression that we're, that we're on here. He says, So I ask you, verse 13, not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now again, we're going to unpack that. We'll come back to that. So Paul launches in this, about to launch in this prayer, calling himself a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and he's about to intercede. And now he wants to unpack, okay, I want, I want to help you understand really my role in this temple building project. Okay? Uh, that's, we just learned about that in chapter 2. So Paul plays a, a unique role. And instead of being, you know, if you think about imprisonment, just think that through. Imagine one of our pastors was imprisoned for, the, for his proclamation of the gospel. What would that look like? It would look like defeat. It would look like oh, we would think something's massively wrong, right? Because he's been in prison. Um, and that's exactly what the Ephesians were tempted to think too. Something's massively wrong because Paul's in prison. Maybe we're not exactly the, the temple that he's describing here. Maybe we're not the conquerors that he just said that we're seated with Christ. Is that really true? If that's true, why is he in prison? So Paul wants to make sure that we understand that his imprisonment is because of Christ and it's on behalf of the Gentiles. It has a redemptive purpose. So now he's going to unpack really his role in the temple building project. And it's, it's in terms of he's been given a mystery to then make it known to the Gentiles, which is doing something in the world that's great and glorious. So that's where we're going. But the first thing he says here about this mystery is he's received it by revelation. He's received it by revelation as a steward of something. So look in, look in verse 2. He says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. So Paul's been given a stewardship. He's, he's literally, you know that the house, the oik word group we were talking about last week and how it's, it's all about the house language? This is the same house language. He's been given a stewardship, uh, a management of the house of God. So he's not been shelved because he's in prison. He's actually a steward of God's grace and it was given to him for the benefit of the Gentiles. Notice that. Given to me for you. Specifically, the stewardship is the mystery. It's a mystery that God has now revealed to Paul. That's what he says here. This mystery was made known to me by revelation. It was God's initiative. Paul wasn't seeking it out, remember? What was Paul doing? Paul was hunting Christians. Paul was going the opposite way. But God sought him out and made known to Paul, who is unworthy, this revelation of the mystery. Paul was one of the most privileged men on the planet and he least deserved it. 
And he is highly aware of that through this whole thing. He understands that his ministry, his service, is a, is a mercy. And by the way, did you know the same is true for all of us? Any opportunity that you have to serve is a sheer mercy from God. It's a great privilege that you have to serve Christ the King. So, Paul, that, that just pervaded him. And so he knew that, that, he had, that God had initiated this revelation and had given him this insight of the mystery. And he says he's already talked about it. Notice this. He says, How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. The end of verse 3. So Paul's already written. Now, what's he talking about? Is he talking about another letter? Is he talking about this letter? I think he's talking about this letter. So, chapter 2, he's already written about this new humanity that God is forming in Jesus. And that's what we're going to see is the mystery. So he's already written about it, already talked about it earlier. And then he's encouraging some extended reading and meditation on his letter. Notice this. When you read this, verse 4, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Now, I I think this is fascinating. I know I'm kind of all over the place right now, but just hang with me. I think this is fascinating because... Some people out there will say, when Paul was writing Scripture, he didn't know he was writing Scripture. He was just writing letters. He was just thinking, okay, I'm just going to write these letters to the churches, and then it was later church history that kind of compiled these things and said, oh, there's Scripture now. I think this verse shows us that Paul was highly aware that he was writing inspired Scripture. Because he's writing this letter, and he's saying, I'm expecting, he gave them one copy, he's expecting them to copy it and then to reread it to assimilate this letter. Exactly what we do now. I mean, can you imagine what, how Paul would have thought of all of our individual Bibles? <laughs> he probably would have wept for joy at the fact that there were so many texts of Scripture available for our personal possession and meditation. So again, right here in the first century, there's the expectation that we're meditating on Scripture and um, seeing these, these writings as, as sacred Scripture. So, He's already written about this mystery, and then he, he talks about who God has chosen to reveal this mystery to. Not only him, he's definitely part of this group, but to another group of people. Look in verse 5. This mystery, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So it wasn't made known in past generations. So what he's talking about is the time period under the Old Covenant, this mystery of Christ and what he's going to accomplish for the sake of the Gentiles wasn't made known. It was, it was veiled. But it has been made known to another group of people, to the apostles and the New Covenant, New Testament prophets that Paul said in chapter 2 were the foundation of the church. So it gives us a little bit of insight on what that means. They received the revelation of the mystery to pass it down to us. That's the role of the apostles and the prophets. That's why they wrote scripture. That's why it was copied widely. And that's why we have what we call our New Testament. Those are our new covenant documents. This is the outflow of of God setting apart the apostles and the prophets. And it's why we preach them verse by verse. Because we have no other authority. And this this is Christ's word for his church, mediated through his apostles. And now, I just want you to think about this for a minute. Sometimes we think, man, I wish I, was, 
I was in the Old Testament and could kind of see some of those battles and victories or um, experience the Shekinah glory in the temple. Paul just slapped you and said, hey, look, what are you thinking? You are in the New Covenant. There are things that have been revealed now that you had no idea, we had no idea about before. This mystery of Gentile inclusion. And we are just incredibly privileged to live in this era of salvation history. And we're only going to see why as, as this begins to unfold here. But what I just but the, for this first feature of the mystery that Paul is describing here is that it, it was given to him by revelation. It was given to him by revelation. And the second feature of the mystery is that it's now it's a now disclosed secret. I'm sorry. Let me rephrase that. The second feature of the mystery is it's now disclosed secret. There we go. That's a better way of saying it. So what's the open secret? What is it? Paul hasn't exactly told us just yet, but he will. He will say that Gentiles who believe are now fully included in God's covenant family. Look in verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So what's the mystery, if we could just sum it up, is that the Gentiles have become fully full participants in the covenant family. Notice all the, in Greek it's, it's co-language, co-heirs, co-members of the body, co-partakers of the promise. Co to who? Believing Israel. The ones to whom the promise was made. So what he's saying here is that the Gentiles have, have come in, we now share in the inheritance that was promised to Israel. That's what it means to be co-heirs. And really that culminates, as we've seen, in the entire new creation. We are members of the same body. Again, we already saw that back in chapter 2. And we participate, we, we co-partake, we participate together with the, with the believing Jews in the promise. And how has all this happened? Again, Paul's shorthand, it's in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In Christ Jesus through the gospel. It's by virtue of our union with Christ. Not anything we did. Christ obtained all of these blessings for us, for the Jews and for the Gentiles. And when we trust him, um, we get all of his benefits. That's what this means of being in Christ. And then he says it's through the gospel. It's by our embrace of the good news of the gospel. Freely, without any merit. So this is incredible, incredible news. And it's a secret now that's been disclosed. So what you might be thinking right now, like, wait a minute, Clay. Well, wasn't, weren't the Gentiles promised salvation in the Old Testament? Yes. They were. So in what sense is this new? Well, in all of the Old Covenant texts, the Gentiles are going to participate. Somehow they're going to be, they're going to be blessed. But it, it always seems like, at least I, I know I'm emphasizing seems, it always seems like it's sort of underneath Israel. Like Israel comes in, they conquer the nations, and then the nations are brought in subjugation to Israel. But what Paul is saying is that they are co-heirs with Israel. We are co-heirs. We have, we've been given the very same spirit that was promised to Israel. We've been brought into a covenant that was promised to her. 
Now, for sure, you know, Isaiah 56 is a, is a good text if you want to talk about the inclusion of the Gentiles into this program. Um, it talks about eunuchs and foreigners being brought into the new temple that God's going to make. But again, it was hazy. It was un, we're, not, we're unsure exactly how this is going to work. But now in Christ, we've seen he's made a universal atonement. It's open to all, Jew and Gentile, and now they're all being brought in and he is building a new house through his apostles and prophets as they, as they proclaim. So that's the, that's the secret that's been disclosed now, in today, uh, in this new covenant age. And that's the second re- feature of this mystery. I want you to notice, number three, the, the method of its dissemination. The method of its dissemination. Number three. It's the third feature of this mystery. Of this gospel, verse 7, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light to everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So what's, what's he saying? He's essentially saying that Paul was entrusted with this gloriously good news to proclaim it to the Gentiles. The idea. So he's, he's received, he was made a minister, verse 7. And this grace was given, verse 8, to preach. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. This temple building program happens through preaching. That's it. Uh, no war, no battles, just preaching. And preaching from the arch enemy, the one who is least worthy, he says, the least of all the saints, not just of the apostles, but all the saints. He's a persecutor. So God is, is, is triumphing now through Paul and his preaching. And as this happens, as the gospel is preached, as the mystery is unveiled, God creates his church. That's the idea. That's what we just saw in chapter 2. God raises people from the dead, gives them new life, and incorporates them into this glorious body. And as God creates his church, Paul is also doing something else besides preaching. I want you to see what, what else he's doing here. In verse 7. I'm sorry, in uh, verse 9. He is grace not only to preach, but to bring to light to everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So his job, not only in preaching the gospel, was to unveil God's blueprint. His ancient blueprint that was, that was veiled and now it's being made known. And who's he unveiling it to? He's unveiling it to everyone. And you shouldn't just think when you hear everyone, every human being. That's true. You should also think every spiritual being. Because that's about where that's where Paul's going to go next. He is unveiling it to everyone. He's illuminating everyone. As he's preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles, and his Gentiles are being brought in to this, this covenant community. And just really quick, I want you to notice this, this really brief description here. He says he's, he's bringing to light, um, he says that he's preaching to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Think about that description. 
To Paul, there are unsearchable, untraceable riches in Christ. And it's his privilege to preach those. And so it just it begs the question, are we mining the riches of Christ in our daily experience of him? There are riches to be had. And I think this little phrase, I mean, doesn't it motivate you to pursue a more vibrant relationship with Christ when you know there are riches to be found in Christ? It's bottomless. Every time the word is preached, every time I read the scriptures and meditate, Christ is inviting me into his royal house, as it were, to experience the riches that he has obtained for me. I want to enjoy that and learn to do that more by communing with Christ. So, that's what Paul's doing. That's how, that's how this message, that's how this mystery is disseminated. It's through preaching, which then, as God creates the church, is illumining to the world God's blueprint, His ancient blueprint that's now being fulfilled. The blueprint for the new temple. And that brings us to our fourth feature, which is its... I'm calling it its, its otherworldly goal. I know these are mouthfuls. I should have. It's embarrassing to admit how long I spent on this outline. <laughs> I'm saying it is embarrassing. Uh, hours on this outline. And this is the best I've got, okay? So, man, I just had to admit that for my own sanctification. All right, its otherworldly goal. So what is the goal of all this? Okay, this is where Paul is headed in this whole section. So if all this has sounded like mumbo-jumbo, focus in right here because this is cool. He says that the very existence of the church becomes a demonstration of the multifaceted wisdom of God as the powers are confounded. All right, I'm going to say it again. Then we're going to read it. The very existence of the church becomes a demonstration of the multifaceted wisdom of God as the powers, that is, the spiritual beings, are confounded. Look in verse 10. He's doing this so that through the church, that is, the existence of the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So what's he saying? Well, the end goal of all of this is to demonstrate the wisdom of God right in the face of His worst enemies. Catch that? And not just the wisdom, but the multifaceted. The, the, Paul, again, makes up a word, uh, multifaceted. It's it means multifaceted. The, the basic word means multifaceted. And then he, he adds a prefix to it. It's like multi-multifaceted. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. But he's emphasizing a point here that God's wisdom is put on display in, a, in, a, in an incredible way as he unites enemies together, people who are once hostile toward one another, and they learn to live together in the church through the blood of Jesus. That's something that Satan and his hordes have been trying to stop since Eden. And God is reversing it now in the church. It's incredible. An incredible display of of God's wisdom here through the Lord Jesus and through the, the preaching of his word. 
So do you realize that your very existence as part of the church is a demonstration of God's wisdom to his enemies? You don't even do anything. Just that you're here. That God saved you and brought you into this thing. You are a billboard of the wisdom of God. God is showcasing through this new humanity, through you and me, his ability to forgive, reverse the curse, resurrect, and unify. And it's thwarting Satan's purposes. And I love it. I love it because Satan tried to stop God's plan, or so he thought, by crucifying Jesus. And what did that do? That just launched the new creation, didn't it? Whoops! (laughs) I love this. That turned out, the Satan's crucifixion of Jesus turned out in triumph for God, and it was the catalyst of the new creation. God is rattling the cage of the principalities and powers through the gospel proclamation, and he's showcasing his wisdom as he creates his church. So what do we do with all this? Well, this passage is incredibly foundational for where we're headed. All right? Remember, the first three chapters of this book are laying the foundation for our Christian life. And then he's going to launch out of that on the back half, the back nine, back three, if you're not a golfer. Um, The back three chapters of this book, it's foundational. And so in what ways is this passage foundational? Well, number one, it assures us of our inclusion, that is, inclusion into the covenant family, and of the Father's love toward us. If you ever doubt that, man, all these pastors are really helpful, but this one is really helpful too. If you find yourself uncertain of the Father's disposition toward you in Christ, look no further than this verse. Notice that God revealed the mystery to Paul for whose sake? For the Gentiles. That's you. So, God, God saved Paul, chose Paul, commissioned Paul for you. Number one. God also sent Paul to proclaim Christ's riches for us. And God clarifies that we're his full covenant members through Jesus and not ourselves. Again, this verse. Paul even suffers for our sake so that we will come to believe the gospel and share in eternal glory. And all of this is is just a faint glimmer of God's love for us. It can provide tidal waves of assurance for us if we'll let it. If we just simply rest in these truths. So it, it assures us of our inclusion and of the Father's love toward us. It also alerts us to our cosmic role in displaying God's wisdom. Okay? I didn't think about that before this week. <laughs> and I'm assuming most of you didn't either, unless you just read this passage. But it, it, it kind of refocuses us to our cosmic role in displaying God's wisdom, and not to settle for anything less than that. It gives us a greater vision for our, our lives. And number three, it elevates our view of the local church. It motivates us to prioritize the church, to commit to the church. I mean, can you imagine floating through life as a professing Christian and never connecting truly to a body, to, to, a, to an ecclesia, which is what he's describing here, a church, and arriving at the judgment seat of Christ? 
who inspired this letter, who has this view of the church, and you never connected to it. And I understand, well, you're a part of the, the universal church, but what he's talking about here is a, is a corporate body of Christ that's manifesting God's wisdom as he brings people together in its variety. So, this motivates us to prioritize it and to commit to it. And so, if you haven't, definitely submit to baptism. Uh, that's, that's number one. That's, that's the covenant sign, being a new covenant member. Um, submit to baptism. Join our church and get involved. There's, there's no greater thing you could do to showcase the wisdom of God. And then finally, we're, we're going to see this big time in the in next semester. Um, it motivates us to pursue unity, forgiveness, and love. It motivates us to pursue unity, forgiveness, and love. Think about the connection here. If God's brought you into this thing called the body, and he's displaying his wisdom as we learn to live together. Uh, we should probably learn to live together, right? Uh, we don't want to detract from his glory um, as we backbite and gossip and refuse to forgive and slander, but instead as we love, learn to prioritize the needs of others, as we learn to love people and lay our lives down for the, for the good of the other members of the body. And that, in turn, just redounds back up the chain to the glory and the wisdom of God as he intends it to be in the church. So that's Paul's digression. That's Paul's digression. And he, he's going to come back around because he's squeezed in this third contrast. <laughs> what once was concealed has now been revealed. He's going to come back around in verse 14, and he's going to pray one of the most beautiful prayers in all of Scripture uh, for the new temple of God in the church as the, the steward of the, of the house is going to pray for the house, if you will. Um, so I'm, I'm super excited to, to unpack this with you guys.